this is not the sermon I was going to preach this morning, and Brad will attest to that. Uh, <laughs> I had another sermon. I, God actually gave me two, and I, I figured he wanted me to pick one, and I did. Unfortunately, I picked the wrong one. So <laughs> he and I had a little discussion, argument, whatever you want to call it, because you never win an argument with God. Uh, so I switched to the other one, and it, it came along pretty nicely. And then I, I sat in Sunday school this morning because I didn't have a chance to read the lesson. I'm sorry. And I suddenly realized why God had me change it, because the title of the lesson this morning is, What Makes a Christian Marriage? And there was a lot of that in Marlene's lesson this morning. So this is a topic that's in current events a lot, and, and many of us have experience with it. Um, so I'd kind of like to start us off with a little humor. Uh, this is, uh, I'm going to have Brad show a video. It's, it's Jeff Allen. I don't know if any of you know him. He's a Christian comedian. Uh, we've seen his stuff here a couple times on Wednesday nights, and he's been doing this forever because if you look on YouTube, you'll find this young guy doing it, and then all of a sudden you find this really old guy, looks older than me, uh, doing the same thing. So I'd like you to watch this. It's, it's, it's kind of a lighthearted look at, at one aspect of marriage, but you'll see how it ties in a little bit. Go ahead, Brad. But you have to learn how your spouse communicates. Tammy can say more than I roll in a sigh. I'll tell you, this is. What do you mean? I didn't say anything. Oh, yes, you did. It took me two years of marriage to figure out she'll never tell me to do anything around our home. If Tammy wants me to do something, she'll ask me a question. It's from the question, I gotta stand there and figure out what does she want me to do. <laughs> Give you an example. Let's just say I leave a pair of my underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor, which frosts my wife. That's her word when she's really angry with me. That just frosts me. <laughs> and if I'm not frosting her, I'm driving her up a wall. That's another one. Kids had come in, where's mom? She's up the wall with frostbite, that's all I know. And you won't believe what put her there, boy. It was that pair of underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor. You were looking at the most powerful piece of cotton on the planet. <laughs> so I leave my underwear in the middle of the floor. Now, would she come to me in her frosted condition and say to me, pick those up. That's three words. Pick those up. Three words. Would she say no? Because that would be simple, direct, and right to the point. And at that moment, I would know exactly what she wanted from me. I would process that information and make a rational decision as to whether or not I would deliver the request. We would then be communicating at the highest human level, the way God the Creator intended it, through language. Tammy looks at me, looks at my underwear, and then asks, are those yours? Well, I sure hope they are, otherwise I got a few questions of my own, babe. Can you all relate to that? So that's kind of a lighthearted look at communication in marriage. <laughs> wow. Um, what, what I'd like to do this morning with, with, with the Lord's help 
is to look at a biblical, take a biblical look at marriage, just like we took a biblical look at uh, sexuality this morning. Let's take a biblical look at marriage. Um, and also some thoughts on the covenant of marriage. So God sketched out his original plan for marriage in Genesis 2, verse 24. And this is the King James Version. It says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. We have any welders here? No, none of you guys have welded? I do a lousy job of welding. Uh, but if you know anything about welding, cleaving means well, kind of welded together. And the weld is always stronger than the metals that were welded together. So if you try and break it, it's going to break someplace other than the weld, if it's a good weld. Um, the second verse that uh, I have here is Proverbs 18.22. It says, The man who finds a wife finds a treasure, and he receives favor from the Lord. So guys, your wives are treasures. I know that can be tough to remember sometimes, because we're guys. So remember that verse. Now, when we get married as Christians, we, we have a, a ceremony that we go through. Um, my wife and I went through that ceremony 15 years after we went to the magistrate in Maryland and got married. Uh, <laughs> but we finally got, got through it. In the Jewish custom, there was a written agreement signed at the time of the marriage to seal the covenant. The marriage ceremony is meant to be a public demonstration of a couple's commitment to that relationship, to that covenant. So it's not the ceremony that's important. It's what? It's the covenant, right? It's the, it's the agreement. It's interesting to look at the Jewish wedding ceremony. The ketubah, and I'm not Hebrew, so I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but the ketubah, or the marriage contract, is read aloud, and it's read in the original Aramaic language. And uh, I'm going to read a small portion of it, of an old one. And this is a lot older than what they use today. It says, be my wife according to the practice of Moses and Israel, and I will cherish, honor, support, and maintain you in accordance with the custom of Jewish husbands who cherish, honor, support, and maintain their wives faithfully. And I here present you with the marriage gift of 200 silver zizim, which belongs to you according to the law of Moses and Israel. And I will also give you your food, clothing, and necessities, and live with you as husband and wife according to universal custom. And the wife consented and became his wife. The trousseau that she brought to him from her father's house in silver, gold, valuables, clothing, furniture, and bedclothes, all this the said bridegroom accepted in the sum of 100 silver pieces and whatever his name was, the bridegroom, consented to increase this amount from his own property with the sum of 100 silver pieces, making in all 200 silver pieces. And thus said the bridegroom, the responsibility of this marriage contract, of this trousseau, and of this additional sum, I take upon myself and my heirs after me so that they shall be paid from the best part of my property and possessions that I have beneath the whole heaven that which I now possess or may hereafter acquire. All my property, real and personal, even the shirt from my back, shall be mortgaged to secure the payment of this marriage contract, of the trousseau, and of the addition made to it during my lifetime and after my death 
from the present day and forever. Wow. That is commitment. <laughs> that contract was so important that the Jewish marriage ceremony is not complete until the groom and bride sign it and the groom presents it to the bride. So it's a moral and a legal commitment in addition to an emotional union, right? I mean, they love each other, they're getting married, but there's also a moral portion to it and a legal portion. Now, in the Christian marriage ceremony, we say the marriage goes beyond the earthly covenant and is a divine picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of scripture passages that, that uh, look at that. Um, and oddly enough, the Bible doesn't give specific instructions for a marriage ceremony. It does mention weddings, though. In John 2, verses 1 and 2, we see the next day was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. There's also scripture in Luke 14, verse 8, that says, when you are invited to a wedding feast... Don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? So from those smattering of scriptures throughout the Old Testament, we knew that weddings were a part of Jewish life. Now, if we fast forward ahead to the present, take a look at the, at the typical Christian ceremony. And you, I'm going to break it into a couple parts. Um, first, we have a declaration of intent. Okay, the bride and the groom get up there and... and uh, the pastor says, and I'm just going to pick a couple names here. John, will you have Sue to be your wife, to live together according to God's order in the holiest state of marriage? Will you love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? Will you comfort her, honor her, and cherish her, and forsaking all others, keep yourself only for her as long as you both shall live? And then the pastor usually says, if you do, then answer, I will. And the, uh, the groom says, I will. Turns to the bride and he says, Sue, will you have John to be your husband to live together according to God's order in the holy estate of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, respect and submit to him, even as the church submits to Christ? And forsaking all others, keep yourself only for him as long as you both shall live. And the, and the bride says, I will. Now, there's a couple things no worth noting in that declaration of intent. Um, first of all, those of you who have been married recently, it may have sounded a little different than what you're used to. Some things have been added, some things have been left out. A lot of times now the bride and the groom write part of this. Um, what's it mean to love as Christ loved the church, guys? Yeah, Christ died for the church, right? I, I'll, I'll never forget when my son got married the, uh, the pastor went through that, and he turned to Nick, and he says, Nick, Christ died for the church. I don't ever want you to forget that. You need to have the attitude that you will die for your wife if necessary. I think that scared the heck out of my son, because the look on his face was absolutely priceless. My wife and I are sitting there watching him, and he just, the color just drained from his face. Um, now, that's a big commitment to die for somebody. The Bible even talks about that. You know, there, there are, what is it? There are few who would die for, 
another person. There are a couple that might die for a friend. Um, the other thing, the other part of this is, is the word honor. Now, in, in, the, in the declaration, it's being used as a verb. Okay, and where's my teacher? It's a transitive verb, right? To honor. She, does, she says, I don't know. It's okay. What's it mean? Well, there's a couple meanings of honor. It, it, to think of highly, to respect highly, to show respect for, to recognize the importance or spiritual value of. That's interesting. The other meaning is to conform to, abide by, act in accordance with an agreement, treaty, promised, request, or, or something similar to that. I think forsaking all others is pretty obvious. It means to re renounce or turn away from entirely, to forsake. We're told to forsake our sins, turn from our sins. Now, in the women's vows, there, there's always a big to-do about the word submit, to the point where a lot of couples admit, actually omit it from their, from their vows, right? I'll be honest, I don't remember my vows. That was a long, <laughs> was a long time ago. Um, and I could preach a whole sermon on that s submission thing, and I think Pastor Jeff did a number of years ago, but let me put it to you this way. When Jesus submitted himself to servanthood by washing the feet of his disciples, by getting down and washing the feet of his disciples, was he any less Lord God Almighty when he did that? No. Is a wife any less a person when she submits to her husband? No. Submitting isn't relinquishing what you are. It's a choice to be a servant. And husbands and wives both do it. So I'm, I'm going to say that Submitting doesn't necessarily mean what a lot of people think it does and get up all up in arms about. I see Dustin grinning from ear to ear there. And, and, and Jamie's laughing at me. That's okay. Um, we, we moved on to the exchange of vows portion. And it says, I, John, take you, Sue, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, cherish, until death do us part. This is my solemn vow. What's, what's the old version to this? I pledge thee my troth. Okay. I got it right. Um, the other part is, I sue, take you, John, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish until death do us part. This is my solemn vow. That part, that exchange of vows is important, okay? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. What's a vow? Biblically, what's a vow? I, I heard somebody say promise. It's a promise. It's a conscious, deliberate promise to do something, and it's spoken out loud. Okay, you'll, you'll, you'll find a lot, if you get a concordance, go through the Bible, you'll find a lot about vows, both, both telling us how to do them 
and to be careful not to do them and how to do them wrong and, and all that kind of stuff. But I think the most important part about it is it's, it's a promise to do something. And, and specifically, it's a promise to have and to hold. Well, I think that's pretty obvious. Stay together. For better, for worse. And we all in marriages go through that. We have good times. We have bad times. For richer, for poorer. But we all know about that. You know, there's, there, there's times when the two of you are sitting there and you don't know where the next bill is going to get paid from. You know, throw them all out on the table and say, God, I can't handle this. You do it. We, my wife and I have done that <laughs> with some very interesting results, but that's another, that's another sermon. Um, till death, well, in sickness and in health, that's important too. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, until death do us part. So the whole thing is meant to be forever, right? Forever as we humans understand forever. Then we get to the exchange of rings. It says, with this ring, I thee wed. With my body, I thee honor. And with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. Now that sounds a little bit like the Jewish part. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And then there's some stuff that comes after that. Now, have any of you found any mention of a wedding ring in the Bible? It's because it's not there. There's a lot of mention of rings. You'll, you'll find a lot of mentions of rings that show the significance of rings, the signet ring, uh, other things. I, I specifically like the ones in Jeremiah and Haggai where, where God likens the people of Israel to his signet ring. Um, the wedding ring simply serves as an emblem of love, and it's a circle which signifies eternity. And it's an agreement between two mature individuals to love and trust each other for as long as they're married, for as long as they live. So, so this, this little ring that we wear on our finger has, has a lot of meaning to it. So what do we get from that? A marriage is an intentional, legal, spiritual, and physical union or covenant of a man and a woman becoming one entity. Okay, now that, that's a little hard to grasp. We know that God, and we know that God considers covenants important because has God ever broken one of his covenants? No. The old covenant and the new covenant, God never broke them. But that bit about becoming one, you know, that, that, can, that can happen quickly. It can take a long time to happen. It just, it just depends on the couple. But, but there'll come a time in your marriage where you'll realize that you're not really complete without the other person. It's... It's, I guess it's a spiritual thing because I find it hard to describe. I find it hard to describe that when, when I want to make a decision about something, I ask God about it, I go to my wife about it. When I want to do something, the same thing. When I want to fix something around the house, I usually talk to my wife about it first in the vain hope that it doesn't need fixed. 
And usually when I ask her about things like that, there's a list that comes out and says, well, this, this, and, and she'll make the comment of, you know, I'd like, I'd like these done before I'm 80, which doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. I meant a lot more when we were 35, but. All right, that's, that's kind of the marriage ceremony, the way Christians look at it and, and the similarities to the, to the old Jewish ketubah, the Jewish ceremony. Um, one thing I want to cover, and Marlene covered it this morning too, so I'm going to, you guys, guys over here for Sunday school are getting a double dose. I'm not sorry. God wants this for something. Um, let's talk a little bit about living together before marriage. Now, I'm going to shock you guys and tell you that living together before marriage isn't the sin. Listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. We heard it this morning. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. That's, a, that's, that's rough. That's a pretty rough statement. What do we do with that? Well, let's look at the story of the woman at the well. You guys remember that one? John 4, 15 and 19, she says, Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. That's in response to Christ's comment about living water. Go and get your husband, he tells her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, You're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. And what's the woman say? Sir, I believe you're a prophet. Now, I love the way she tries to change the subject. Do, do you think maybe she's a little embarrassed? I mean, I do. The, the Bible doesn't say that, but I kind of think that. So even in those days, living together without being married was, was kind of not the norm. Here's some justifications that people give. If we marry, we'll lose financial benefits. True. I have bad credit. Getting married will ruin my spouse's credit. Also true. A piece of paper won't make any difference. If our love and private commitment to each other, it's, it's our love and private commitment to each other that matters. <sighs> We could sit here for a half an hour, and I'm sure you all could come up with a long list that all makes sense. And we make hundreds of excuses not to obey God. But a life of surrender requires a heart of what? Obedience, right? And it's obedience to God. And the great part is God always blesses obedience. In Deuteronomy 28, 1-2, he says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commandments that I am giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all those blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Now, God's all about obedience, right? Disobedience is never blessed. Now, 
Can we be hypocritical about this? Sure. Um, let me tell you a story. Happened in our first church, Trinity Assembly of God. It's a little church. It sits under that huge bridge in Nicholson. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it on the internet. It's a railroad bridge. It's probably 150 feet in the air, spans of the valley. And this little church sits right under it. If the bridge ever falls, the church is gone. So we, Marion and I moved to Scranton in 87, I guess it was, and we, we got saved. She got saved, have to be accurate. She got saved, and then we started going to church, and then I got saved. So we're going to this little church, and, and a young couple comes in, and they start to attend. They get saved. They get baptized, you know, and they're, and they're regular attenders of the church. Well, a couple people in the church found out that they weren't married and they were living together. Well, this, this caused quite a stir, okay? It was the, the 80s and late 80s. Uh, where, where s there's still more of a stir then than there is now about stuff like that. But it caused quite a stir in the church, and naturally what happened? People started to do this. So one Sunday, Pastor John gets up, gets up in front of everybody, and he says, I have good news. These two people have agreed to separate for a couple months until we can do a wedding, until we can get everybody in and do a wedding. Um... And, you know, and thus honor God, you know, and everybody's cheering, amen, hallelujah, all that kind of stuff. And he says, now, so I want you guys to put your money where your mouth is. They can't afford to do that. Their parents live too far away and can't and aren't financially able to help them. They can only afford one rental. Who's going to take one of them in? That kind of brings Christian love into reality, right? The rubber hits the road there. Now, I do want to say that the church worked it out as a group. Somebody took one of them in. They lived apart for about a month. They got married in our church. Wonderful young couple. Um, and, and it all worked out. But when you think about how we as Christians feel about things that are going on in the world, you can't take God out of that equation. You know, God, God can do anything. God is God. He can do anything. He can change somebody's mind. He can change somebody's whole outlook on things. And he can bring a whole congregation together to help two young people who really wanted to do the right thing. And he brought the congregation together instead of gossiping about them to help them. So, you know, that's, that's a great aspect, I think, of... The, the marriage covenant, actually, because when you think about what happened to those two young people, that was an example of what Christ can do, not only in a congregation, but for a couple that wants to get married and for a couple that wants to do the right thing by God. All right. We've covered what marriage is biblically. Now, how many of you think a big part of this covenant is spiritual? I do. Well, do you think Satan's going to attack any marriage? Yeah. So what stresses, what stresses 
marriages have and what, what causes them to fail. Now, I'm, I'm going to just give you the top five. You'll find there's quite a few more. The number one thing, and I'll bet you think it's going to be finances. It's not. It's an unforgiving spirit. You know, how many times have we had an argument with our spouse and spent the next day plotting our revenge? <laughs> yeah, I've been there. My wife's been there. My, my parents have been there. <laughs> um, that's number one. Financial pressure is actually number two, okay? And it it's always seems to be insurmountable. And you can get to the point where you're constantly fighting over money. Not, not necessarily over money, but, but what to do with it and why there isn't any of it and whose fault it is and what are you going to do about it and, and those kind of things. You know, I can, I can see the Jewish wife say, well, you, you said you were going to do all this stuff. You better get busy because you're not doing it. Number three is infidelity. And this is always a biggie, and it causes a lot of marriages to break up. Lust always leads to infidelity of the heart, mind, and body. No sexual experience outside of marriage is okay. We heard that this morning. Number four is insecurity and worry. And this can make both the husband and wife miserable. And it goes right along with financial pressure. It can also be health problems. It can be children. It can be your children's health. It's, it's, you worry. And number five is what I'm going to call secret sins. Uh, last week I did a sermon on addiction. And, and one of the things you'll, you'll hear in, uh, in a lot of 12-step programs is we're only as sick as our deepest, darkest secret. Well, you can be pretty sick sometimes if you're only as sick as your deepest, darkest secret. Um, these are the things we try to keep hidden, even from God. Now, we all know you can't hide stuff from God, but we try and do it. And they can ruin trust in a marriage very quickly. Uh, Psalm 98, 90 verse 8 says, You spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. So God sees it no matter what we try and do with it. So how in the world can a marriage survive? That's just five things. Well, for the unforgiving spirit, we need to learn to extend forgiveness because it's critical to harmony. Instead of obsessing about how we've been wronged, we need to treat our spouse how God treats you, treats us. Colossians 3.13 says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. You know, there's, there's that other verse, I think it's in Matthew, I forget the scripture right now, that says, if you can't forgive other people, God can't forgive you. I think that's a scary verse. I think part of this whole forgiveness thing and, and that is, is learning how to fight fair in a marriage. Because are you going to have arguments? Are you going to leave your underwear on the bedroom floor? Uh, now, I'm going to be straight up with you guys. I would not dare to do that. <laughs> I mean, my wife's very ill, but she would still find a way to let me know that wasn't right. 
Um, during a disagreement, I think we need to keep our words and our attitude and the volume of our words in check. Proverbs 10:19 says, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Now, that's the New Living Translation version, I think. Is that? Yeah, we got that right. Uh, be the person who does their best to listen. Repeat it back to the other person and listen to what they say to make sure that you've got it right. How many times, I'm going to talk to guys here because I'm a guy. How many times have you totally misunderstood what your wife's trying to tell you? I... Is that yours? Yeah. I've misunderstood it. I've, I've gone off and done totally different things and, and gotten to the point where my wife looks at me and says, why'd you do that? And I say, well, you asked me to do that. No, that's not what I meant. <laughs> well, instead of having the fight about it, try and, try and understand. That's not easy because when, when we listen to people, how do we listen? What do we want to do right away? We want to respond, right? We listen to respond, not to hear the other person. I'm, I have to fight that all the time. I, I've done it to some of you. You're telling me something, and I'll start to come up with something else. So it's, it's, it's very hard to do, but it's something that we need to learn to do. And one of the most important things is don't call names. Don't call the other person names. What does the Bible tell us about the tongue? No, don't worry, Brad. There's no scripture for this. Um, what does it tell us about the tongue? It tells, us, it tells us a lot of bad stuff about the tongue, right? And once you've said it, yeah, you're an idiot. Yes, dear, I'm an idiot. I mean, um, and, and if it's said in anger, it, it can, that can last for years. My wife still remembers things about arguments that we had in 1985 when we still got married, when we just got married. Now, being a guy, I've totally forgotten them, but, but she remembers them. And I remember some nasty things that she said to me during, the, during what I like to call the drinking years. Uh, and, and we had some pretty good fights back then. So when the smoke settles after a fight, you, try, you really should try and take positive steps to be stronger as a couple. You know, talk about it. Try and bridge that communication gap. Apologize. This is tough for guys. Ladies, I'm here to tell you it's tough for guys to apologize. And, and, and I mean apologies. I mean not, need, not just say, I'm sorry, or yes, dear, to apologize. You know, I, honey, I, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I hurt you. You know, when I said this, it hurt you. Um, reassure your spouse and try and learn from the disagreement because you know what's what's the good old fashioned defini definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results and and we do that a lot of times in our marriages you know we'll do uh, I'm, now I'm speaking for guys now maybe women don't do it but we'll do the same stupid thing 
and our wives will kind of whack us upside the head and we'll think, oh yeah, I did that before and it had the, had the same effect. Shouldn't do that anymore. The other thing, being a guy, remember Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughtiness or a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is not your friend in a disagreement with your spouse. Whether you're a guy or a girl, pride is not your friend. Okay, going ahead. Financial pressure. Don't spend your life trying to earn more and spend more or you're going to enslave yourself to a life of dissatisfaction, materialism, and endless stress. And the old standby verse for that, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Okay, now, is money evil? No. The, the love of money, what... How do I put this? Anything I put before my God is a what? Idol. So if I am only working to make money, to make more money, so that that money makes more money, and that money makes even more money, I've put an idol in front of God. Is he going to reward that? Probably not. It's not wrong to make a lot of money. It's wrong to worship the art of making money. Work out a budget. I, I'm a terrible, terrible one for this. It took me years to work out a budget with, with my wife. Do the bill paying together. I know that's scary. Especially for us guys that like firearms. <laughs> you know, honey, I just spent $600 on a gun. You what? Yeah, that can be scary, but, but I encourage you to sit down and pay your bills together, not just one of you, because that's kind of forcing it on the other person. And I know now, when, when Marion and I first got married, she handed me the checkbook. She said, I've done this myself for, I forget how many years. It's your job now. But there better be money in the account when I go to Kohl's and want to spend, I'm sorry, want to save $800. <laughs> by spending 600, right? Um, <laughs> work out that budget. It, it can be done. It's, it's not always pleasant, it's not always easy, but it, but it works. And above all, tithe. I had the same experience as Pastor Jeff. I, I, I looked through that Bible for ways out of tithing for a long time. And, and my favorite story is I got laid off up in Sayre. I, I worked for, I, I was not too bright. I had a job in healthcare, got laid off back in the late 90s when healthcare went. So I, what did I do? I took another job in healthcare and worked for two years and got laid off again. I went to my pastor and I said, I can't pay our bills. We got one that's due and I, we can't pay it. He takes out his wallet, he gives me a hundred bucks. He says, here, pay the bill. I said, I, I can't do that. I can't take money from you. He said, yes, you can. But he says, but, but there is a string attached. Start to tithe. 
Well, he and I had quite a long discussion about that because <laughs> I'm a stubborn guy. So Marion and I started to tithe. Now, we, we had kind of tithed in our old church, but not really. You know, you know how it is. Well, you know, one, one, one week we'll give this, one week we give that. And, ooh, this week all the bills are due, so we're not going to give anything. So we started to tithe. And I was tithing on unemployment at that time. The bills got paid. And to this day, I don't know how the bills got paid. And I got a job in probably ooh, a couple months. Um, and I paid Pastor Chris back his $100, to which he says, don't give it to me, just put it in the plate. Okay, so I did that. So, you know, tithing, tithing works. And I can't tell you how many stories I've heard, even from couples here, about how they've been blessed by tithing. All right, let's go on to infidelity. God will never let you fall in love with someone other than your spouse. No, that's wrong. God will never lead you to fall in love with someone other than your spouse. Now, if that happened to you and you're divorced and remarried, I recommend two things, because I went through this myself. I'm divorced and remarried. First, ask forgiveness and get right with God. Then do everything in your power to keep it from happening again. Exodus 20, 14, the third commandment says you must not commit adultery. Malachi 2, 14 says, you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Look, I'm not going to talk more about divorce. I've been through it. I got saved shortly after I got divorced. Uh, I don't recommend it. I would never want to go through it again. And it, it was un until God pulled it off of me, it was probably the biggest regret I ever had in my life. Was, was divorcing my first wife because there was no reason for it. No good reason for it. Looking back now, I'm looking back 35 years later. Let's go to insecurity and worry. Take your eyes off the world and its illusion of happiness. You will never find peace from anyone or anything the world offers you. Listen to that again. You will never find peace from anyone or anything the world offers you. Trust in who? God. Matthew 6, 31, 33 says, so don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. That sounds so simple, and it can get so hard in practice in this world because we, we as people like things. I like my car. Dustin, you like your Mustang? Yeah, I like my Mustang. Nothing wrong with that, but if, if I get all my happiness from that car, I'm going to be in a sad state of affairs pretty quickly. 
Secret sins. If you hide a sinful fantasy or a habit, it will always get stronger. Pretending something doesn't exist or isn't wrong gives it greater power over your life. Now, that, that's, that's a biblical principle, right? Sin feels real good at first. And it always costs more than we want to pay at the end. So, I've told you about, I've told some of you about my friend uh, up in, way, way up in the country, and he's facing charges because of one of those secret sins. Now, he's saved, but his addiction predated his salvation. Now, he's been a terrific husband to his wife, so she decided she's going to stick by him through all this. Because he confessed it and he asked forgiveness of her and of God. Now, he still faces the consequences of his actions, right? I mean, God, God can remove our sins, but God's not going to remove the consequences of your sins. So if you murdered somebody and you get saved, you're saved, but you're still going to face consequences for that murder. Now, because he confessed and repented of that, it, it doesn't have the power over him that he had before. And, and I was talking to him last week, and he's, he's starting to come to that realization. This doesn't matter to me anymore. And, and I pray to God that, that that sticks. Because like all addictions, sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes you got to go through more stuff. But because of that repentance and sharing it with everybody, he's got a ton of people praying for him. I mean, there's, there's probably six churches praying for him right now because she's, she's a minister. She's a, uh, a music minister in a different, different con uh, not congregation. What do I want to say? Different denomination, yeah, than us. So Satan's going to use any of the above five reasons to his advantage, right? He'll get in there, you know, and he'll use your finances against you. He'll use your spouse against you. He'll use anything he can get his hands on to try and break up your marriage. So let's look at a couple other issues. I was going to ask the question, and I don't want to ask it because there's quite a number of us here, and some of us are still dealing with it, but there's, there's a number of people here that have struggled with having a spouse who ha that has or had a serious illness. Can that put stress on your marriage? Sure. Sure it can. I can tell you from my experience, I learned quite a few things. First, I learned how much work my wife did to turn our house into a home because now I've got to do it all. And I'll tell you, that caused me some guilt because for years I was just oblivious to that. You come home from work, your wife has dinner. I mean, we're, we're old, I'm sorry for you young people, we're, we're older folks, so that's the way it used to be, that's the, way, that's the way it was for us. Your wife has dinner and you eat dinner and you know, you help with the dishes and you sit down and watch TV. The house looks gorgeous. I have a friend that says my wife Simonizes our house every week. For those of you that don't know what Simonize is, it's waxing. Um, so I, I felt guilty about it. Um, 
I learned to deal with some resentment because in spite, and you all know how much I love my wife, it's hard to give up the things you wanted to do together to take care of someone who needs your help. I have to take care of her before myself. I have to take care of myself too. So there's, there's conflict there. You know, and, that, and that can be a problem. Third, I learned that only our Christian friends kept in touch and have prayed for us constantly. We had, we had several really good friends that when Marion got real sick, they're, they're gone. I don't know where they are. You folks have stuck around. And a number of our other friends from our other churches have stuck around. So to me, that means that I need to stay connected to my church family and to God to help with this because it's not, it's not easy and it's not something you can do all by yourself. And, and those illnesses don't always end well. Sometimes we lose our spouses. There's a number of you here that have lost a spouse to a serious illness recently, fairly recently. That's hard, too, and you can't do it without God and without Christian friends. It's, just, it's impossible. One of the beautiful things, I think, about being a church family is we can learn from other people's example, those people that have been through it before. You can go to them and say, how'd you handle this? Can you pray for me? I have no idea what I'm doing. Please help. So that's a way we can learn to rely on God and to help us cherish the good times as we go through the bad. What about the unfaithful or addicted spouse? And we talked about addiction last week. How do you handle that? Well, what I said last week was you can't change an addict until what? Until they surrender that addiction to God. The only thing you can do is pray for them. Man, that's hard. For years, I tried to fix my wife because she, she was addicted to alcohol. Tried to fix her, tried to fix her, tried to fix her. It did nothing but tick her off and mess me up. When we got saved was when things started to change. For the worse at first, and then they started to get better as, as time went on, as we, as, we, as we really got into it. The other thing you can't do, and there's an old saying in the recovery population, you can't make an addict feel any guiltier than they already do. Trust me, they know it's wrong. They just can't stop. You can, you can encourage them. You can encourage them to find help through the church or recovery program like Adult Teen Challenge or New Life or a number of the other ones that are out there. But don't take the guilt on yourself. No matter what that addiction says to you, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't make it stop. So prayer, the, the most powerful, effective weapon against that thing is prayer. Now, we always like to come up with excuses for things that we want to do but are afraid to face God with, right? You want to do something, but you don't, either don't want God to know about it or you're afraid he, he wouldn't like it very much. So what about the breakup of marriages? Traditional church doctrine is that divorce should be res reserved only for reasons of infidelity. And as 
you know, Paul said the fact that something is lawful does not mean it is the best course of action. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Now, the marriage relationship is the most intimate of human relationships. It's that one flesh thing. Two people come together as one. The words for divorce in both Hebrew and Greek are very strong words. The Hebrew word is karath, which means to cut off or cut down, like chop down a tree, that kind of thing. The Greek word, wow, karidzo, which means a separation or division, kind of the same concept, cutting. So a, a divorce is quite a shock to everybody. And trust me, even if the two people want to get divorced, it's still a shock. This biblical pattern for marriage that we've been talking about has repeatedly been shown to succeed in a society. Strong marriages build strong families, strong families build strong churches, and strong communities. Although divorce is permissible in some instances, the truly biblical course of action would be to rebuke, await repentance, offer forgiveness, and be reconciled. Matthew 18, 15, 17 says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense, if the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if she or he won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Wow, that's, that's pretty harsh too. What, what is God always looking for in, in any relationship, even the relationship between him and us? Reconciliation, yeah, reconciliation, right? God is all about reconciliation. If the first thought that comes in your head when you're, when you're back there in, what is it, number three or four, and you're having the fight, if the first thought that comes into your head is divorce, you're not being much of a Christian. I'm sorry, that's harsh, but... That's, that's the way it is. And that's pretty much all I'm going to say about it. Um, if I, I understand that in cases of infidelity and abuse, divorce may be the only solution. However, I would think that it, that's something that you need to carefully consider in concert with your pastor. You know, that guy can help you even though ours keeps saying he doesn't counsel. And, and I think, you know, honestly, I think his philosophy is very good. What's the Bible say? Go do it. That can be harsh to people. You know, that's like that video I showed last week. Just stop it. And the lady had all kinds of excuses as to why she didn't want to stop it. Um, the other thing is, Maybe get yourself a Christian counselor if your pastor doesn't do it or can recommend somebody. 
All right, so we've looked at what? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Hey, I'm getting longer. <laughs> so that's, that's this thing called marriage. You date, you fall in love with someone that you have no, really don't know at all. You decide that you want to build a life together, but you don't have a clue as to what's going to happen. Life tends to mess with you. Uh, you stand before a preacher and you make a covenant with each other to become one for life. Now, there's only one way you're going to be making, you're going to be able to make it through, and that's with God. Remember the verse about the threefold cord? Yeah, threefold cord. You, your spouse, and God wrapped together. A Christian marriage honors God above all else. As Christians, it's important to focus on the purpose of a marriage. The Bible encourages believers to enter into marriage in a way that honors God's covenant relationship. Remember, Christ and the church. That's the picture of marriage. Submits to the laws of God first, and then the laws of the land. Don't forget there's, you know, we're under laws as well as under the church and it gives a public demonstration of that commitment that holy commitment that's being made so yes like everything we do as christians we're on display you know well they go to church but they're talking about getting a divorce you're on to people look people are watching I, and i'm sorry to say it but people watch us Okay, let's pray. Father, you came up with this thing called marriage, and we do praise you for it because a lot of us without our spouses, we wouldn't know what to do or where we'd be. So Lord, I ask that you strengthen that, uh, that threefold cord in each and every relationship that's in this church. I ask that you give us the, the peace in that relationship, Lord, and give us the tools that we need to, uh, to make all the marriages here good ones. I ask that you be with us this coming week. I ask that you just uh, help us to be your people out in the world, Lord. Help us to spread your word and help us to so order our lives that, uh, that we run this way, race well. Lord, uh, again, be with the people that are sick this morning and that can't be here. Bring them in next week. And Lord, we just uh, we thank you for being who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. PJ will be preaching next Sunday, which I am very grateful for. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to preach to you guys. You didn't stone me or anything, so that's a good thing. So have a good week. Thank you.